Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. So I think when you start to go through a process of learning how to cancel a season, uh, which may seem so logical, may seem so practical, um, so expected, a kind of fait accompli, right? Um, boy, it was not. It was quite the journey with the Ravinia family. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. With us today is Wells Kaufman, retiring president and CEO of Ravinia and the Ravinia Festival. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You fell in love with Chicago in the late 1980s when you visited a friend in Chicago and borrowed his bike for a ride on, along the lakefront on a very cold February day. I'm trying to picture that. A decade <laughs> later, you returned, to, you returned to run Ravinia and spent the next 20 years running the nation's oldest outdoor music festival. And now you're leaving. And yet your swan song is not what it should be because the season was canceled for the very first time since the Great Depression. And the magnificent send-off on stage that you deserved and would have gotten didn't happen. How does that feel? Well, there's a, a feeling of, of certainly some bittersweetness, but at the same time, it is completely and thoroughly, and I really mean that it's overridden by uh, my decision to cancel this summer. There just was no way to pull off not only a Ravinia that would look like a Ravinia, but anything that remotely resembled safety and security for our artists, for staff, and, and of course, the audience. Um, and I remember a lot of people would say to me, well, gosh, you've got that big lawn, and you can socially distance, and you can do that in the pavilion. All of that may have been feasible. Then you deal with food and beverage and restrooms and things like that. That would have been another thing. The real issue was how do people come and go from Ravinia? You know, we'll get five to 7,000 people on Metra to come to Ravinia. Well, you can't socially distance on a train. And uh, then we have people who arrive at different times, right? Everybody comes to a concert at different times, but everybody leaves at the same time. So you would have huge crowds standing very close together. Um, it just wasn't, when you added it all up, um, the right move to make. So truly, um, in a situation like this, um, it really had to be the, the safety and security of, of everybody coming to Ravinia and, and who loved it. And, you know, when you're 116 years old, you can afford to look at history and say, um, well, we did shut down in the Depression. That was a major thing. There was no shutdown to our knowledge during the Spanish flu. There were concerts in honor of soldiers in World War One. We know that from program books. But um, after 9-11... And it's interesting we're speaking on 9-11, right? So 9-11, 2001, was the very first day after the very last day of my first season. Um, so in many ways, I've, I've kind of had these bookend, once-in-a-lifetime experiences. And, of course, after 9-11, nobody knew if 
outdoor festivals would be open? Would it be like Fish in a Barrel, like Las Vegas, in that, that hideous situation that happened with the country music concert um, a couple years ago? Uh, so, so these things are not just learning experiences. That sort of sounds like a, you know, a, a bad MBA student um, trying to learn from stuff. These are horrific events, the economic fallout, the election going on, the politics piece of it. All of this is very tough on people. The desolation, the loneliness the mental, um, psychological aspects of trying to keep my incredible 60-member full-time staff buoyant and motivated. And uh, all of that has been a brand new job. And one that I love doing, quite frankly, because I, I get to work with great people here, whether it's the board of directors or the women's board or our junior board or the staff. It's just an extraordinary place. You have called this the silent summer. You've said you expect it to have a lasting impact. How so? Uh, I'm sorry, lasting impact, me, myself, or lasting impact this particular summer? Well, yeah, the silent summer, and this will have a yeah. lasting impact. How? Yeah. I, well, you know, everybody's going to have to learn how to do two, two, several new things, uh, whether it's performers on stage um, or administrators such as myself. Um, or audience members, because this isn't going to go away overnight. So there is optimism that concerts will return sometime in 2021. No one knows if that will be the summer or the spring or the fall. Um, but that's the glass half full look at it, which is why I've basically booked all of 2021 for Ravinia, uh, for my successor, who I'm working with on transition things right now, somebody I've known for over 20 years. And so he's being given something to work with so he doesn't have to start fresh um, with with brand new artists and things like that. And, of course, a lot of that was achieved by simply moving what was in this summer, 2020, into next summer. So I think when you start to go through a process of learning how to cancel a season, uh, which may seem so logical, may seem so practical, um, so expected, a kind of fait accompli, right? Um, boy, it was not. It was quite the journey with the Ravinia family. Um, and I expected it to be. There were a lot of people who felt we should go ahead with it. Um, and they weren't being cruel or greedy. They just thought that being outdoors and everything else that Ravinia was, it would be a safe place. And so why were we even considering uh, the possibility of cancellation? And I first raised cancellation with my board of trustees on Saturday, March 14, a day I'll never forget, on a, our first ever telephonic board meeting. This was pre-Zoom um, use by us, uh, just two days after the Chicago lockdown. So I think all of those things become part of one's DNA in how one approaches audience. And I think that's what I mean about lasting impact. Of course, you know, how do you set up an orchestra, the greatest orchestra in the world, the Chicago Symphony, and the greatest choir around the Chicago Symphony Orchestra Chorus um, on stage? And how, how do they remain safe? Those things to be learned will probably be things, sadly, that will have to be put into place in future seasons because... How, though? Uh, how? A bigger stage? I mean, what do you do well, to keep yeah, the orchestra members separate? Yeah, so a lot of a lot of creative thought has been gone, gone into this, especially by conductors, right? Um, so Christoph Eschenbach, uh, dear friend of the festival, dear friend of mine, Marin Alsop, um, our chief conductor and curator, they're both doing interesting things. So Christoph in Berlin has a 110-piece orchestra, sort of the standard size. And he, uh, two weeks ago, did Mozart and Haydn performances. So that's automatically, it can be a smaller orchestra. You know, you can do it with 25 players, 45 players, whatever you 
you need. Uh, you can go larger, but you can go to those lower levels of, of numbers without changing the artistic quality. So he rehearsed each half of the orchestra, right? So the orchestras are split in half, much as we did at Ravinia when we did the Mozart operas and the Martin Theater. We split the CSO in half, half would play Magic Flute, half would play Don Giovanni. So he did that same sort of thing. So um, they could spread out the orchestra. Uh, the wind players um, had plexiglass uh, baffles between them and the string players. That already is commonly done with symphonic pops concerts where you can have really loud brass players and it's a, it's a way for people not to have their eardrums blasted out. So that kind of practical, physical thing um, already existed. Now it's being used for a different purpose. So the drummers and rock music use that too. And say that again, I'm sorry? Drummers and rock, rock music bands use that also. The Absolutely. Correct. Yeah, yeah. They're very unnoticeable to most audiences because they are clear and you can't really see them unless you're up close to them. <clears throat> so Christoph did a seven o'clock, one hour concert with half the orchestra and the audience socially distanced. Then everybody left. There was no intermission. There was no food and beverage. There were no bars for the public. Those folks left. The musicians left the stage. They disinfected everything for an hour or maybe 45 minutes. Then they let the new audience in and they brought the new orchestra in and did another concert. Um, and so that's one creative way of going at this. You can't do that forever necessarily. And it's not because the musicians and the conductors and the audiences aren't willing, but you know, the most popular music in the classical music canon is the late 19th century romantic war horses, right? It's Tchaikovsky, it's Rachmaninoff, it's Mahler, it's Strauss, it's, um, all of those pounders. <laughs> and, and you do need big forces to make that happen. Marin Alsop is doing interesting experience, uh, experiments in Vienna in a similar sort of way with stage setup. The hardest thing is chorus, because of course now we know that if you're speaking, that six feet of social distancing works, but if you're singing, um, it's more yeah. like double that. So how do you do that? How do you actually make that happen? I think Ricardo Muti in Salzburg with the Vienna Philharmonic did a base of a nine with the chorus set up that way. And I'm not trying to ding him or anything, you know, it's, but people are trying things. In Madrid, they did Traviata at the opera, right? Temperature checks for audience, temperature checks for the cast, temperature checks for the conductor, double cast. So no one who was feeling any sense of fatigue um, would have to go on, but they could keep doing performances on consecutive nights without wiping people out. Um, people are taking creative approaches to this, especially in Europe and in Asia. And that will start happening in the United States. Well. Have you thought about the possibility that next season may be in jeopardy as well? I, I think that everything needs to be on the table to be ready to be able to move nimbly um, on anything. So, yes, I mean, I think that one of the beauties of having canceled on May 1 is that there are now uh, for 2020, um, there's a precedent for one knowing you could do it that late. Um, so Ravinia has the great opportunity to watch um, Vienna and watch Berlin and watch Stockholm and watch Oslo and watch Madrid and Tokyo and Singapore and see what they're doing and learn from those things. Um, and on the non-classical side, the Beach Boys have begun doing performances. Um, and, you know, they're, they're such smart guys and they've been around forever. They know two things. One, they know their audience, which tends to skew a little bit older, not completely, but a little bit, are going to behave, right? So if there are rules about math, 
masks, the rules about social distancing, they're going to follow those rules, entry, exit, all of that. And that's the case. So I think they did some concerts in Nebraska and Iowa, and I think they're going to keep doing that. And these really are experiments. In Germany, they're doing um, kind of regular size, regular occupancy, small club performances with temperature checks and trying to keep people safe. So uh, again, Ravinia can learn from all of that as it unfolds. What might the impact be of the very deep recession on Ravinia donors who are so important? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that um, I did not know on that first bike ride in the snow, who does a bike ride in the snow? And, you know, of course, I'm a Californian, so it's February. I was in shorts. I, what do I know? It's, it's crazy, crazy. But but I, truly, I did fall in love with that city. There's like, what's that building on uh is it 1550 State Parkway, that white building? It's like 12 stories. It's from the 20s or something beautiful. I took 19 pictures of that and really wanted to live there. Never made that happen. Anyway, um, uh, it's one thing I didn't realize was the power of the Chicago community um, to support um, the smallest storefront theater and the Art Institute. Um, the tiny dance company that plays at the Ruth Page Foundation uh, down in, in their north and the Lyric. Um, there is such passion and pride around these organizations. And unlike New York or L.A. or other places where I've worked where people have been very sort of niche oriented, I'm a symphony person or I'm a chamber music person or I'm an opera person or a museum person or a dance or whatever. Uh, there's much more of a spread amongst folks. And I think the reason for that in Chicago is that Chicagoans who are donors are so committed to um, reaching underserved kids. And when you do that, you're, you're finding kids that like all sorts of things, right? Um, kids are omnivorous. They're not focused on only playing the viola. Praise God, not the, just the viola, right? But uh, um, they want to do a bunch of different things. And I think that makes the donor base um, very powerful, very strong. And they have stepped up. They're helping everybody. Will organizations have tough times? Absolutely. Um, is Ravinia trying to prepare for that? Absolutely. Uh, has the Ravinia family always been very careful about being fiscally wise? Absolutely. Um, and that is not to say that other places aren't fiscally wise. It's just that Ravinia has been fortunate. You've worked since you were 10 years old, starting as a boy soprano in musicals like Oliver Mayman, Music Man. You later worked as a rehearsal pianist for the Oakland Raiders cheerleaders. What do you remember about those early days? Well, I remembered what a terrible singer I was and a worse actor. But, you know, there weren't a lot of little eight, nine, ten year old boys whose voices hadn't changed that were willing to do that. Um, but I know that I learned about theater people in those experiences and, and how they are a different organism than a classical music piano person. They have different feelings about the art form that they work in. And because theater is by its very nature, um, something that you have to collaborate with others on, it, it was more fun, right? Than sitting in a practice room and just playing the piano all the time. I remember that quite distinctly. And then when my voice changed, I turned into a rehearsal pianist and then I could actually make some money because rehearsal pianists can make a little bit of cash. And that supplemented the paper route and the other thing that, things I were doing. With the Raiderettes, my fifth grade choral teacher knew the choreographer for the Raiderettes. 
and um, he came and and brought some of the Raiderettes to actually perform with our little junior high choir, uh, which made made it possible for us to win all these competitions all over the state of California. We'd travel around, um, and you had these you know really attractive women who could really really dance, and uh, so we would do things like. Um, uh, Carpenter's songs and medleys of, of Irving Berlin things. And then we would be singing Shaft because that's what the Raiderettes <laughs> would dance to. So it was wild, you know, it was really wild. And I, I think that the fact that my parents allowed me to have these experiences, I think they sort of thought I'd be okay. I'm the youngest of three. And, you know, the last of three usually gets a little less attention <laughs> sometimes than the other two. Um, and I mean that with fire. I thought it was great. Um, but so I was sort of off doing my own thing. And, and I was in the care of teachers, right? So they, I mean, my parents are both teachers, so they knew that was going to be all right. Um, but these are molding experiences. There, there's no question about that. Um, I was in a David Mamet play in San Francisco uh, before I left um, high school um, because it was a play called The Water Engine, and they needed a pianist to sort of improvise and play some music at a little tiny theater. And those are the kinds of things that you just remember forever and ever, going to Tanglewood as a pianist and being a terrible pianist compared to everybody else, but getting to meet people my age who did the nerdy thing I did playing the piano and did it really well and were fun and were kind of normal and had regular lives. All of those things are, are hugely uh, beneficial and molding. And of course, you know, Tango and I met Leonard Bernstein and you just never forget things like that. Um, so I've been lucky, uh, you know, the movie Zelig, the Woody Allen movie. Yeah. I'm, I'm sort of like that character, right? I just sort of showed up at places and I'd be, you know, in Atlanta working for the Atlanta Symphony. I remember being on stage at a huge event for the Olympics, which were coming to Atlanta. And I'm standing there and this man comes up and stands next to me next to a podium and it's Nelson Mandela. I mean, where does that happen? You know, it's just a, <laughs> oh, a very wow. lucky thing. He, he was in to promote South Africa, right, for the Olympics and things like that. So um, I've been very, very fortunate. And I think while I've not tried to milk those experiences, I have valued them and stopped believing that they were just luck and that there was a reason why those things happened. So um, very much. I don't believe things. in luck. I believe in luck is, you know, a person who puts themselves in a position to, to take advantage of luck. It, it takes a lot to be, to be lucky under and your I, leadership. I need to say this because I have to tell you this real fast because I met you at one of the announcements of the Chicago library, one book, one Chicago, I can't remember the book and it was Mayor Daly doing it. And you were right up next to him. And I, I introduced myself and I said, I'm a big fan, love reading your, your columns and your, and your reporting. And he was talking about the book. And then you asked him a question completely having nothing to do with one book, one Chicago. It was a really pointed, fabulous question. And he answered it and he looked at you and he said, Fran, it's good to see you. And I thought, wow, that's, that's what you do. You're in the moment and you make the moment, right? You, you make it, make it work. So anyway, that's my little yeah, moment absolutely. for you. Absolutely. Under your leadership, Ravinia really widened its horizons. It remains the summer residence of the CSO, the Chicago Symphony. But CSO performances have been scaled back and there is jazz and blues and country and pop and rock and hip hop. What's been the biggest surprise as you branched out? Um, well, the, the biggest surprise for uh, the Ravinia family, the board and women's board and everybody, um, and the audience was that, in fact, Ravinia has always spread a pretty wide tent, some years less wide than others, right? 
So in the 60s and 70s, when I can Tina Turner were there and Janis Joplin was there and Jesus Christ Superstar was there and, and huge, huge uh, rock concerts before Poplar Creek was built, which took all of those artists away from Ravinia. And there was a sort of 10-year fallow period, and then that was followed by another 10 years where it just wasn't of interest to the people running Ravinia to continue that kind of programming. So reminding people that, um, you know, Ella Fitzgerald and, and Duke Ellington and Count Basie all played in the 40s and 50s. This wasn't really a kind of fish-out-of-water experience. But I, I wanted to make sure that everything we presented – um, was at least trying to aspire to be on the same level as this greatest orchestra in the country and one of the best in the world, the Chicago Symphony. It's the Chicago Symphony that, that was the magnet that drew me to Ravinia because I thought, this is great. I've worked for orchestras all my life. I don't have to work for this orchestra. I get to work to try to you know, have wonderful performances in a summer venue, but I don't have to actually manage them, which um, was a, a great boon and a kind of different kind of relationship. Um, we actually present more classical music at Ravinia now than ever before. You're correct, fewer CSO concerts, um, but of course the CSO is doing far more concerts downtown. Why is that? Because touring has pretty much largely dropped off um, for what major American orchestras do. It's just too expensive. They still tour, but not nearly like they did, say, in the Schulte years. And that's because also there's no recording business anymore. Sure, they make their own records, but those used to be lucrative for the musicians in terms of their own paychecks. And you would make a recording and then go on tour to sell the recording in the same right. way that non-classical artists do, right? The reason why we have this extraordinary abundance of non-classical performers still performing is that what used to be their income, 50% recording, 50% touring, is now 90% touring and 10% recording. So the world has changed a lot. Um, I wish I could have a CSO and have them sold out all the time. That was another thing that, that the audience didn't quite know that, that we were giving away hundreds and hundreds of CSO tickets in the pavilion every night. Because um, the pavilion is huge. It's larger than Symphony Center by 700 seats. Um, it's approaching the size of the auditorium, that big, beautiful hulk of a theater in Chicago. It's bigger than Carnegie. It's twice as big as Disney Hall. It's a huge place. Um, and, and sort of getting people that on the same page about that wasn't a way of trimming back on the CSO with all of these factors. And that got You were very excited about getting Santana to play Ravinia. I, I was, was there. It was a fabulous concert. What can you tell us about that? So that's interesting. So I got the job in summer of 2000. I was working in L.A. and I went to Vegas. I was invited to come to Carlos's um, first either Hard Rock Hotel or House of Blues Club at one of the big casinos. And I went, and I don't know him terribly well, so let's just, big disclaimer, folks, I'm not Carlos Santana's best friend, but I did go backstage, and he said, what are you up to? And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to go work at Ravinia. I would love to have you there. I know you haven't been there. And he said, I, I won't come. Very nice. I said, what? <laughs> and he said, my audience won't go there. It's a classical music house. And he didn't say it in a mean or derogatory way. Um, you know, Carlos is from San Francisco Bay Area. Bill Graham really built his career there beginning in the 60s. He was used to playing the Fillmore and Winterland and these great classic rock and roll venues, not the Opera House in San Francisco, right? Um, so I, I completely understood that. But I begged and begged and begged and begged and begged. And he came. And it was the fastest sellout we ever had. But, Fran, you may know we didn't have sellouts at Ravinia until I came because there was never any capacity cut off on the lawn. 
It was as if yeah. the lawn didn't have a fence around it. It just kept, you know, and that made for some pretty miserable evenings in terms of comfort and traffic and things like that. So, um, so I took, Tony Bennett was another. Yeah. Tony that Bennett plays time. every year in recent years with his daughter. But the two of them together, I saw couples arriving in tuxedos and gowns. I was yeah. not one of them. But what were the two of them like backstage and with each other? Tell us something we don't know. They were the they were like so the, the equivalent I would say from the music world would be um, Daniel Barenboim and Jacqueline Dupre. So Barenboim, great conductor, great pianist. Jacqueline Dupre, maybe one of the greatest cellists ever to live, who was taken down by multiple sclerosis. Um, but amazing, fiery, passionate couple on stage, off stage, right? So you have that kind of connection, that kind of connectivity. With Tony and Gaga, you have a friskiness and an affability and a connectivity and a kind of unspoken, we know what we're going to do. Um, both shows were not completely different. The playlist stayed pretty much the same, but how they approached each song, whether a solo or a duet, was completely different. You may recall um, it was during, it was the first one of those shows, that was the Supreme Court decision on same-sex marriage, and Gaga spoke about that from the stage. I mean, that was, that was kind of a classic, wonderful Ravinia experience. I'm not saying she wouldn't have done that from the stage of Madison Square Garden or a venue in, in Zurich, but um, it was very, very special for the audience. So you did have the tuxedo folks, and then you had everybody under the sun, right? Gay, straight, black, brown, young, old, um, all sorts of fabulous folks, many of whom had never been to Ravinia before, somehow got tickets through a, you know, a scalping office or something, which is great that they could be there. Um, it was an amazing thing. Because Tony was Tony's right. the first concert I ever went to. I went to see Tony yeah. Bennett in uh, San Francisco when I was five years old with my father. So, Wow. Dave Brubeck and his sons was another mm. very special night. And it was mm. very shortly before Dave died. I was at that yeah. concert. It was magnificent. Yeah. How did that come about? Oh, well, Dave always, he didn't promote his sons. They've, they're so talented. He didn't really need to build their careers, right? He, they didn't need a leg up. They were going to be fine. But they did love working together. Um, so that was a, a tour that we very much wanted to be a part of, as was something that really only happened at Ravinia when we had Mary McPartland, Oscar Peterson, Dave, and Ramsey Lewis as a uh, four and piano uh, night that was uh, just out of this world. Yeah, there have been some incredibly special things. And, you know, Brubeck, again, I, er, my, my parents, big fan. I think we listened to, you know, hymns for church, My Fair Lady soundtrack, West Side Story movie soundtrack, and Take Five. Those are the things that we listen to all the time. It's a pretty good playlist for a little kid. As a musician yourself, you have always pushed the envelope. You asked Ramsey Lewis, to write a piano concerto for jazz trio and orchestra in 2015, Proclamation of Hope to celebrate Abraham Lincoln's bicentennial and a piece for the Joffrey. And when Ramsey expressed reservations about writing a concerto for the number one or two orchestra in the world, he claims that you told him, you can do it, goodbye, and you hung up the phone on him. Wow. <laughs> That's about the golden that. <laughs> it wasn't quite that abrupt. I have too much respect for him to be that way. But I did make very sure that he knew that I believed in his ability to be able to do it. That, that was really the point of that, is that 
you know, he's a consummate musician. He started as a classical pianist. Young black classical pianist didn't have much of a career trajectory. Um, so he went into jazz. That's actually his life story in Chicago. And it's a, it's a bittersweet one, but thank God we have him as we have him. Right. But he always wanted to do something with the Chicago symphony. And there he is, our artistic director of jazz or Ravinia. And there they are the resident ensemble since 1905. And, um, why not put them together? And it was his 80th birthday. So, yeah, uh, it all kind of. Really special. You spent $60 million on structural improvements, video screens in and outside the pavilion, a new restaurant, a dining pavilion, the tunnel that goes beneath the railroad tracks. Why did you do that? Why was that necessary at such a beautiful place? It is a beautiful place in a beautiful part of the world. And we are very fortunate to be on the North Shore, to be in Highland Park. There's no question about that. That said, um, I think one can rely on places looking a little shabby chic. But when they get to be a little more shabby than chic, you got to watch out because concert venues, everything needs to work, right? It can't just be terrific performers on stage. You've got to have great restrooms. You've got to have great food and beverage. You've got to have um, uh, parking lots that don't flood as ours did on a regular basis, especially our two lots for our donors, which was crazy to me, you know, that that would happen. You've got to be able to give people something to to look at. Um, music is a visual experience. It's not just an audio one. If you're at a live performance, um, if it were just an audio one, people could just stay home and listen to their computers or their bows or whatever they're going to do. Um, and one of the things I really wanted to get rid of, which was kind of a, a pet peeve of mine. I don't know if you remember, friend, those shushers that would walk around the lawn with those big signs right. and say, tell your baby, shut, shut up. Right. They, well, do you remember the, um, the yellow submarine movie, the animated movie with the Beatles? And they had those really scary, big, meet the screaming meanies. That's what those guys looked like to me. And they would frighten children and kids would cry and say, I don't want to ever go back to Rivenia. Um And I thought, well, this is a great way to encourage a new audience to come. Well, so how do you do that? How do you quiet down a lawn audience, especially for a venue like Ravinia, built before amplification? And therefore, that's why you can't see the stage from the lawn. It's as simple as that. Tanglewood's the same way, built in the 20s. So having video screens. If people can see the concert, they're in the concert. And if they're in the concert, they don't talk. And so it really had a huge effect. I thought there might be a 20% reduction on sound. It was about a 50 to 60% reduction. So um, one of the things my successor is going to have to really think about that I did not get done was a regular use of a lawn screen. Um, as we have used for films and things like that. So that's one example of, of sort of facilities things. But the $60 million, it was really necessary to do. Bricks and mortar campaigns are not always the most popular things to do. We had our centennial coming up when I came to Ravinia. I come in 2000, centennial's 2004. We started to build a plan um, to figure out what we wanted to make happen. We didn't try to do it all at once. We didn't lay it all out in front of the board and say, you're going to spend $60, 70000000 million. That would have scared the pants off them, and I would have been working back for the Raiderettes again and, and a barista at, a, at Starbucks, which I love. Um, we did it bite size, right? How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. So we did the food and beverage first. Um, and then when people saw that building go up, such a magnificent Dirk Lohan building, um, that they started to see that their donations, even if they weren't directly going to, to bricks and mortar facilities, um, were making a difference. 
And the underpass just always scared me because it didn't scare me. The lack of one scared me because it's a live train track. You know, it, the train is such a part of our history. We were built by a train company to lure people up to the North Shore to buy property. That's the whole reason why the last tr- private train stop in Illinois is Ravinia. Um, but you don't want, you know, Wells at 16 years old with a pimply face being the only thing between you and a live train track and a, and a, a skippy cycling fence. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It might make sense before a show, but after a show, when everybody's pressing on that fence and on that kid, and they may have had a couple more glasses of Chardonnay than they should have or wanted to, all of that just really was dangerous. And I wanted there to be a sense of occasion when you arrived by train or in our big parking lot, the West parking lot. And now we have that, especially uh, with Dolores Cole's um, gorgeous um, addition to the park, the the aquatic sculpture that greets you when you come in. So all of those things. Yeah, the Ravinia music box is one of your cherished accomplishments. You're also so into music education. What has been your proudest achievement? I think in music education, wherever I've worked, it's about trying to put a spotlight on those efforts, whether the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra or the Atlanta Symphony, um, that diversity and education frequently go hand in hand. They certainly did for us at Ravinia. They did in Atlanta, no question. Um, and so those two things very important to me to make sure that everybody would, that wanted to come could and would feel welcome. For me, that's diversity, right? It's not quotas and how many board members are of color. It's, it's, that's important, but, but it's really that people feel welcome and that they can see themselves on stage, especially for kids. They need to see themselves on stage to feel comfortable and welcome and feel like they're really a part of it. On the education side, I wanted to make sure that the whole Ravinia family and indeed the greater Chicagoland area um, uh, realized that our women's board started our education activities in the 60s during another uh, seminal period of civil unrest in in the United States and um, has been going great gun ever since. But it's kind of a hard thing to describe to people because why would a summer festival have an education program? It's not going during the school year, right? It's kind of a nonsensical thing. So there was some work to be done on that and some fundraising to make happen and to make sure our programs really um, were uh, as efficient as they could possibly be to reach as many kids. So, for instance, we only go into schools that don't have a music teacher. Those are the art, those are the arts deserts that really need it. It's easier to go into a school with a music teacher because you've got an instant partner. But in fact, in CPS, and I mean this with love, and again, I'm a kid of, of two teachers. I, I know a little bit about this. It's the principals that control the, the purse strings. So we wanted to make sure we bonded with them. And they tend to stay a little bit longer than teachers do who migrate a little bit more frequently. Um, so we wanted to make those bonds happen. Simple things like that that may not be so visible. On the visibility side, um, we do do Sistema work. This is the education program, orchestral education program coming out of Caracas, Venezuela. Um, by a genius no longer with us, uh, Maestro Abreu. And their greatest um, protege student out of that is the you know, skyrocketing conductor, Gustavo Dudamel, music director of the LA Phil, who made his Ravinia debut a couple of summers ago. So we do that work in Waukegan. We do that work in Austin and North Lawndale. And what happens is we bring kids to the park. And one of the greatest ways to make sure that kids and families realize the park is theirs is you do education because they come, they drop the kids off. The kids rehearse for three hours. The parents stay. They walk around. They look at the beauty of the place. They pick them up. It's theirs. 
We're not, and it's important right. to go to schools too. All of that's important, but bringing them to Ravinia for that kind of work is also key. Where does someone as accomplished as you go from here? You're not even 60. Do you see yourself running another venue like Ravinia anywhere else, or is it time for you to take a break? I, I, I don't know the answer to that question, and, and this might seem like a, a dodge, but my partner and I, we, um, we're going to go on a Ravinia women's board trip. We do these little excursions, weekend trips to different places. We've been to New York. We've been to um, Southern California, and we were going to L.A., and basically what those trips are is I take people to, to places that I used to work, and we talk to our friends and have a little bit of a backstage moment, L.A. Phil, Getty Museum, whatever. So my partner and I, was, we were going to go and we thought, okay, we're going to be away. We'll be out of Highland Park. We'll think about next steps. Uh, my partner ran the Joffrey Ballet for many years here at Ravinia. He's been a dance guy all of his life. Um, and of course, that's when the virus began to hit. Uh, so we were at the Hollywood Bowl, actually, with 40 Ravinia supporters, women's board members and others. My friend Gail Samuel, who runs the Hollywood Bowl, I looked at her. She's taking us on a tour on a Saturday, beautiful Saturday morning in L.A., I said, so Gail, what are you doing about the, the virus? Are you guys trying to get ready for this summer? And she blanched, but not because she didn't know about the virus, but because the County of LA Health Department had just contacted her about how to get ready with contact tracing. They were already on that in LA. We weren't yet in Chicago. But that's a long way of saying that was the moment at which we were going to sort of figure out next chapters. And it's been a whirlwind ever since between uh, the cancellation of the season, the moving of the season, the transition with my successor, and of course, very crucially, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and writing a statement about that from Ravinia. So, so you um, really don't know what you're going to do? I don't you know. Really don't? I don't know. I don't know. Wow. You know part of the re- great part about working at the first espresso bar in Walnut Creek, California, or getting, paying my way through college by managing through Baskin Robbins or playing for the Raiderettes is that you sort of feel like you can do anything <laughs> and, and make a paycheck and, and, and live anywhere. I've been lucky to live in a lot of different places. So we feel kind of free, um, and not free from anything bad, but just free to be able to start thinking about that sometime in October after taking a breath. And if you were writing a review of Wells Kaufman's 20-year run at Ravinia, what would you say? I would say um, uh, he did his best to leave it uh, leave a great place better than he found it, and that he did okay. I would say more than that. Wells Kaufman, thank you so very much for joining us. Best of luck in the next chapter of your life, whatever it may be, and we'll be watching for it because I know you're going to have a heavy contribution wherever you go. Enjoy. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm going to subscribe to the Sun Times on um, online, so I'll be if I'm in in Timbuktu or in in uh, Las Vegas, I'll be able to read your columns, and I look forward to that. Thanks so much for the thank time. Thank you very much, sir, and thank you for your wonderful run. And we will see you all next week. 